Thank you so much, Adrian, for that beautiful reading. And it is lovely to be uh, with you this, this morning. And welcome to those who are online. And uh, just to introduce myself, my name's Sarah Jane Roop, and I'm a licensed lay minister here. And I'm married to Richard, who will be leading the intercessions later. So as I start, I will pray. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you that by your spirit you are here in this place. So Lord, would you open up our eyes to your power and your glory. Help us, Lord, to stir our hearts to uh, see you as you really are. And pray, Lord, that you will minister to all of us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Simon said, we're on week two of our overview of the book of Revelation. And just to reassure you, Revelation is part of Scripture. So it's contributing to the biblical narrative of the story, which finds its climax in the person of Jesus and its completeness at his return. So it's a story of creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. So I hope you've taken up the challenge of reading through this book and please keep going. Because Revelation is, it's like a whodunit novel. At the end, all the various loose threads are tied up. But we might have to go back uh, to the earlier chapters um, just to read where those clues were that we hadn't realized were important and now we understand that they are. So if we just have the first slide, please. So if you were here last week, we looked at the judgment of the seven churches in modern-day Turkey, which are near to Ephesus. So they were struggling with a variety of problems. So from an earthly perspective, their new faith was making their life very difficult. And for others, they weren't being distinctive enough, and they might lose their way. So the temptation was therefore, are we expressing our faith in the right way? Is it worth carrying on? It's so difficult. They really needed some help. So Revelation reveals the unseen realities in heaven to motivate and inspire Christians of the need to always have Jesus at the center of their faith and to live for his praise and his glory. So Revelation 4 and 5, actually, they go together as a backdrop to the later chapters. So I'm going to quickly look at chapter 4. It wasn't read out, so maybe you can read it in your Bibles as I speak. Because chapter 4 begins this vision with an open door into heaven. And John gives us a sneak peek of what uh, heaven is like in a very symbolic way. John, Jesus has called John into heaven, into the spirit. So now we're on this cosmic canvas in the throne room of heaven, we see this timeless eternity with God enthroned over all creation. It's incredible. It's a vision full of color and noise. It's supernatural and it's otherworldly. And it is just so overwhelming. But how do you describe the indescribable? So that is why we, he does this by way of symbolism. So all the clues John mentions about the beasts and the rainbow and the jewels, and uh, they just ring bells of earlier stories. 
the stories of the creation, of Noah, of the Exodus, leaving Egypt and then wandering through the wilderness, and then the blazing lamps of fire reminiscent of the tabernacles and temple of God where heaven and earth met. But the throne is the controlling center. And the main activity that John sees is that of worship, giving glory and honor to God. And those strange living creatures are the created order, and they're around the throne, which is reminiscent of visions that uh, we read about in Ezekiel and Isaiah. And it is all of creation, not just humans, involved in praising God, giving him worth, along with the angels. So the key verse is uh, chapter 4, verse 11. Slide 2, please. So these worship hymns they're singing, they give praise and glory to God, acknowledging his holiness, his power, and his authority. And they acknowledge that God is the creator of all things, and we only exist because of him. And that ties in with the creation narrative and throughout the Bible that the earth is the Lord's and that he created everything, it is his. And that is why creation care is so important. So the world isn't gonna be burnt up and destroyed, although it is so distressing to see all those wildfires um, on our screens. But the earth is gonna be renewed and restored by Jesus and we have our part to play in that. And at the moment, we might feel we face a plethora of repressive autocracies, and we see despicable things done in the name of power and possession. But God is sovereign. The message is consistent throughout God's word. He knows the beginning and the end. Nothing surprises him. And one day, he is going to restore order and justice out of the chaos. And that's what we need to hold on to. That is our faith. But whatever is happening on earth, there is eternal worship going on in heaven by this heavenly congregation. Our creator God is established on his eternal throne and all creation responds in praise because of who God is. So chapter four, we have that throne room splendor, and now the drama of the lamb and the scroll in chapter five that we read about. So God is seated on his throne, and he's holding a scroll sealed with seven seals. So the main thing is that the scroll is completely unreadable, and it's sealed so well. And the scroll probably stands for the secret plans of human history, which we read about in the following chapters. I have to say it's all pretty grim, and it's up to you to, to read those. But a mighty angel asks, who is worthy to open the scrolls? And then we have this despair and lament by John. Even in heaven, the situation seems hopeless. John doesn't just weep, but he wept and he wept. There is just so much drama going on. So this feeling of despair and hopelessness that no one could open the scroll. 
No one anywhere is worthy. So this imagery of worship, of bowing down, is similar to the um, imperial cult worship that was going on in the Roman Empire at the time. So as the emperor traveled around his empire, people were required to come out and proclaim their allegiance to him. You are worthy. So this asks, is the Roman emperor worthy? Are the other Roman gods worthy? And the answer is no. Only Jesus is worthy of honor honor and glory and praise. And perhaps today we don't really see people as worthy because we know that they're not. But what are we looking for? Maybe someone who can fix the problems, who knows what needs to be done and then gets them done. Would that person get our appreciation to reverse climate change, to solve disease, to get rid of guns and weapons, stop the wars, allow us to live in peace? Well, as people, we all want those things, but maybe without God. But the Bible tells us it's just not going to happen. It cannot happen because no one can deal with the rebellion in our hearts against God. That is the real problem. Only Jesus can fix that problem. But John's agony soon turns to adoration. The ascended Jesus has arrived in heaven and now he shares the throne with God. The lion and the lamb, power and vulnerability, victory over the evil powers through suffering. So now that the lamb is obviously Jesus, so why all the symbolism? Why doesn't it just say Jesus? Well, it's because it sort of helps us to see that the answer has always been Jesus, but in a gradually revealing way. So the whole story of the Bible is God's story of rescue that has been going on throughout human history. The so next slide. So we're told that the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed over his enemies. Oh, right, time to flick back through the book because these are messianic titles. So the Lion of Judah is promised from Genesis 49 when Jacob blesses his sons that he would, this, this uh, Lion of Judah will rule over the nations. And then, of course, King David's line was going to produce another king. Jesus fulfills every promise and prophecy. So he is the true king and the true Messiah. So we might expect to see Aslan roaring in heaven. But no, we see the lamb. Next slide. The lamb is standing in the center of creation. And it bears the marks of having been slaughtered. So instead of might... Jesus has defeated evil by suffering, by self-sacrifice, by dying on the cross in obedience to his Father. And so where have we met that lamb before? Well, in Exodus, there's the Passover lamb, sacrificed before they left Egypt, when God saved them from slavery. And then there's the lamb of the atonement, 
for uh, dealing with sins, and then also the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, where he's led by, like a lamb to the slaughter to carry our sins on himself. But what did the Lamb of God do? Uh, next slide. So the key verse is verse 9, because this verse speaks in terms of purchasing with blood, like animal sacrifice, which is maybe rather, well, it is alien to us, and, but is only one way of explaining um, the gospel. I mean, I've never asked anyone, have you been purchased by the Lamb? by the blood of the lamb. Have you? So maybe another way of saying it might be helpful. So we once lived in a world of peace, justice, and order, without death, disease, or conflict. But by rebelling against God and turning away from him, we lost that world. So our rebellion unleashed forces of evil and destruction, which the Bible calls Satan, so that things are now falling apart. But Jesus, who is God, came into the world and he lived a life of obedience to God's ways. He died a victim of injustice as our substitute, bearing the penalty of our evil and rebellion on himself. And then one day he will bring justice to the world and destroy all death and evil without destroying us. So verse 10 goes on that we are God's treasured possession, a kingdom under his care, a priesthood for his service, and co-rulers of the restored creation, as Adam and Eve were meant to do. So Jesus freed us from slavery to sin and made us his own family and treasure. So we belong to Jesus now, and nothing can separate us from his love. So Jesus is inclusive. There's no room for racism or prejudice. He's purchased a people from every tribe and nation. So the people are scattered among the nations, and like a shepherd, Jesus is in the business of gathering his sheep from all over the world. They know his voice and they respond to him. But Jesus is also exclusive. And that is why Jesse and Aggie Rowe, who used to be part of our congregation here, they feel called to Mongolia to share the good news that there is an open door into heaven through faith in Jesus. So we're going to pray for them. But God's victory over evil has already taken place in the risen Christ. It is finished. So with the Spirit's help, we need to resist the evil one ruling on earth. The prince of this world with all his lies and deception. Trusting that God will destroy him and establish an eternal reign of shalom. So even when Satan and death are finally defeated... That's when God's full salvation can be fully experienced by us as believers in the new heaven and the new earth. But until then, there is this ambiguity in our lives now as we experience the goodness of God, but also evil. 
but we can decide to join that unseen reality of praise and worship in heaven, to strengthen our faith and to deepen our love and devotion for Jesus, to help us persevere in our faithful living for Jesus. Because all of heaven responds to what Jesus has done in worship. And I wonder, is there a person who you feel has shown great kindness to you, maybe literally saved your life? Or do we know stories of despairing lives whose um, lives have been, um, sorry, despairing people whose lives have been changed by given, be, being given a second chance? And when you think of your helper, you might say, I'm eternally grateful. I can't thank you enough. You make my heart sing. And so they sing a new song to Jesus out of gratitude and thankfulness. And they're in great company. There's this huge number of angels in heaven. Sung worship is a bit of a minefield, isn't it, really? Some people like, you know, the prayer, song, sandwich, stand up, sit down, um, And in our daughter's church, they sing and dance for at least 40 minutes before anything else happens. But it is really not about the tune or the emotional satisfaction, but it's about the person we're singing about. It's all about God and the things that he has done. So God as our creator and redeemer is worthy of our praise. And it's not just praise. Did you notice the prayers too in verse 8? Uh, Next slide, please. The prayers are in golden bowls full of incense. In Psalm 141, David says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. So it's the prayers, okay, not the incense that are important to the outworking of God's purpose in history. Our prayers are important in the coming of God's kingdom. We pray, thy kingdom come. And come, Lord Jesus. So in heaven, our prayers are heard amid the horrors of a violent and volatile world. So this is a vision of how things are now in the heavenly realms. It's a reality that we can participate in now. So heaven touching earth that changes our perspective as we look forward to the reality that we one day will see. So we can praise God who sits on the throne and praise the Lamb. So maybe as we respond to that, let us pray. Our loving creator God, we thank you for the life that you've given us and the world in which we live. Things may seem hopeless for some of us, but thank you that you are eternal, sovereign, and in control. And if we want to be in control, Lord, help us to surrender that desire to you. But maybe some of us feel that our lives are out of control. And if so, let us just offer that to God now. Lord Jesus, thank you that you loved us enough to die in our place, freeing us from our sins and opening the door of heaven. 
Lord, we're sorry that we don't thank you enough for our freedom, that we live as part of your family. Maybe because we don't understand it, or we don't know how important this is, because we're so distracted by other things. Help us by your spirit to love you more, by praising your name and worshiping you, whatever our circumstances, because we know we are your treasured possession, bought at a great price. Amen.